Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Phoebe Robinson's new book, Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, has been on Time Magazine's list of the 34 most anticipated books of fall 2021. A new book by Phoebe Robinson has been on my most anticipated list since her 2019 book, Everything's Trash, but that's okay. Full disclosure, I look forward to Phoebe Robinson's creativity in every form of media, which is why it's such a delight to talk with her now. Phoebe, welcome back to City Life. Thanks for having me back on. I'm so thrilled. I wish we could do this in person because you're such a ball, but I will happily (laughs) do this over Zoom if this means we get to chat. And maybe we could coin another word for your ever-growing glossary or dictionary. (laughs) If I could give you a Zoom hug, or should we call it a Zug? (laughs) I like Zug. I've got to tell you, it's scary because, you know, I could be your mom, but after spending a couple hundred pages with you, I find myself (laughs) abbreviating words just in normal conversation with non-Phoebe people. Anyway, what a different world we inhabit since your last visit to Atlanta for stand-up, I think that was, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. summer of 2019. Yeah. Oh, we were so young and innocent back then. <laughs> we I'm are, telling you. We've grown a lot since then, and we've been challenged a lot. And sometimes I still feel like this is just a dream, and I'm going to wake up, and there's going to be no such thing as covid But then on the other hand, I feel sometimes I'm very present and I'm, you know, me thinking about how I should arrange my life in in certain ways. So it's this back and forth of just feeling like this is so unbelievable and I can't really comprehend it. And it driving me forward to do things like write this book and, you know, start this imprint that I was wanting to start before COVID. And yeah, it's strange times. I think... We need a new time zone. Like we should call it COVID standard time. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I used to have this, you know, kind of calendar date-oriented mind, and who can recall in this weird time zone? But it didn't stop you from writing a book, forming an imprint, forming your own production company. You write about all of that in this book. One thing that remains unchanged is your love of wordplay and expanding our language through creating your own language. Maybe we should call it Phoebish. Mm-hmm. I like Phoebish. <laughs> I like Phoebish. I think it captures it all. You are the only person who can make me laugh at a reference to Guantanamo, Phoebe. You call it Guantans. Yeah, Guantans. Why not? It's so silly. <laughs> but that, you know, that sounds like something on a Chinese restaurant menu, not where where innocent people have been sent and many tortured. Would you talk about adding to our vocabulary with words such as situationship? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I love about language and about writing is that There are a lot of times where literature in general can just come off as so pretentious and so snobby. And so I always want to reject that. And even if I'm talking about something serious like performative allyship or a decision to be voluntarily child free, I want to talk about it in a way that's not only accessible, but that is not taking myself too seriously And instead, it's sort of being like, we're all in this together. Let's sort of talk about it. And if I could just, you know, have fun with abbreviations or using things like situationship, um, just to sort of lighten the mood a little bit, then I'm happy to do it. And I think it makes the reader, at least I hope it makes the reader also not take themselves too seriously and remember, oh, right, I can have fun and I can poke fun at myself and I can poke fun at the things that I believe in because I'm confident enough to know that won't rattle me. So that's really where the inspiration from that comes from. And I think certainly as a Black person, there is always this expectation that the work you're going to write is going to have to fit in, you know, the African-American canon in some way next to ta Coates and Toni Morrison and Britt Bennett. And I'm just sort of like, I, I, I think there's room for just Black authors to just be and have fun and write the things that they want to write without sort of having the pressure being like, is this going to be a thing that's going to represent Blackness in some way that can be idolized? Oh, and you write about that compellingly because the complexity of approaching just conversation since the late spring and summer with the tragedies of 2020 has not been easy for people. I mean, you point out the importance of not all Black literature, Black entertainment, Black daily life being about struggle and strive. And yet it also is part of your essence and and forms who you are, your worldview. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that when everything happened last year and 
George Floyd's murder and murder of several other um, Black people really kind of, because we were all, you know, quarantining, certainly nationwide and around the, the globe. And so there was just this heightened sense of people really paying attention to this because they're not able to distract themselves or, you know, move about their lives normally and go on vacations and work and blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of sort of this push of like anti-racism books and them flying off the shelves and selling. And that's great. I mean, a lot of these people have worked so hard to, to write these books and, um, you know, I'm thinking about like, how to be an anti-racist, you know, Ijeoma Oluo's uh, book. So you want to talk about race? They're phenomenal and they're fantastic. But I also was like, you know, Black people write other books besides anti-racism books. And so for me, I'm like, are you reading, you know, YA novels like You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson? As a Black girl who's in high school and she falls in love with this other girl and it's just you know, it's just about being a teenager or American Spy, which is espionage or just any sort of number of books that have nothing to do with sort of Black trauma. Like I think about someone like Samantha Irby and her essay collections are always so funny and so delightful and touch on everyday life. And so I feel like there's such a push for sort of publishing works where it's about Black people sort of dealing with trauma and there's a an appetite to read that. And I always want people to sort of really take a beat and sort of think about why that is and why there isn't sort of the rallying cry or the, the rabid support around books by Black authors that are about Black life that's not you know, sort of just dealing in trauma and sort of adversity. And really, I want people to think about the way that they buy books and really just buy books that have something to do with Black joy or, you know, the Black experience is so wide ranging. And I think to just have it boiled down to just sort of pain and suffering, I think does a disservice to us. And I think it just reinforces the notion that Black life equals pain and suffering and there's nothing else to it. Yes. Your affectionate name for the love of your life, British Bake Off. You mm -hmm. even play with the spelling of that nickname, B-A-E-K-Off. <laughs> uh, -E so you get the bay in there. Actually, Phoebe, I have to tell you, I have retained a moment from our first conversation when we were in studio, and you got a call from Bay as you addressed him when you answered your phone. And I just remember your face. You were, you were radiant. <laughs> I, I knew when you took that phone call, Phoebe's in love. And here you are, a couple mm -hmm. years later, having taken on a whole lot together. You devote a lot of this book to writing about B.B. There's the chapter Quarren Bay, and then the detailed chapter on a tale of an American dating a Brit. Would you talk about some of the cultural differences you've had to navigate? 
Yeah, I mean, we've been together four years and I have so much fun with him. Even, you know, as most couples, you have those moments where you don't see eye to eye, you're really frustrated with each other. But it's just like, there's no one else I'd rather be frustrated with than BB. I am the first American he's ever dated, first Black American he's ever dated, and he's the first British person I've ever dated. You know, there are just things like the whole thing about just like tea is such a huge part of British culture and they have full conversations about tea and I I didn't really think you could do that I was just like you just make tea and you drink it and you move on but it's truly a personality and a lifestyle there you know I just think that American energy typically is a little more aggressive and in your face and a little bit more like I'm going to let you know what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and you're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, I think a lot of British people are a little bit like, this is a lot of energy. Like when we first started dating, he was just like, why are you yelling at me all the time? And I was like, I'm not, (laughs) this is my like regular voice. And this is how I speak. And I was like, I'm not loud. And he was like, you are so loud. And he was like, all your friends are loud. He's like, your family's loud. He's like, you Americans are just like screaming at the top of your lungs. And I always felt, I was like, I think we're kind of like chill and quiet, but that is not how people in the UK view us. Um, So we just have like those funny things where you just sort of have to realize, oh, oh, this is different than how you do things or this is what I'm not normally used to. But I think we really have found common ground in a lot of ways. And I just love him so much and he just makes me so happy and yeah I'm I'm happy to keep learning and discovering all the ways that Americans are interesting to Brits. Brits like to give non-compliments. That is their <laughs> oh that's interesting. You go, oh, "Okay, so you hate that." <laughs> <laughs> Subtlety is not our long suit in the US, no. is it? I love when you wrote that you secretly longed for one of those translator earpieces everyone Mm -hmm. wears at the UN. (laughs) When we first started dating, it was truly hard. He would be on the road and we were long distance. And sometimes he like, we couldn't FaceTime. So I couldn't like read his lips and really understand what he was saying. And I just had to like old fashioned, just on the phone. And I'd be like, what? the hell is this man saying right now and just use like context clues and now like I totally hear the accent and like when people don't understand what he's saying I just like translate it for him and but yeah in the beginning I was like this sounds great but I don't know what you're talking about (laughs) now but have you picked up some Britishism sometimes they say the word mates instead of friends I definitely love to do afternoon tea now that's a whole thing where I'm like let's spend an afternoon and we'll just drink lots of tea and eat cucumber sandwiches so I've definitely have picked that up and I'm a little less blah since I started dating him I'm a, there's a I'm a little bit more reserved although my friends might be like are you really I feel like it's the same but <laughs> <laughs> to me I feel a little less like a brash American, which I think is, I think is good. That, yes, we could all use a little less brash. Although I so identified with what you were writing about in observing cultural differences, particularly if 
one can generalize that Brits tend to be more reserved with their emotions. But here you've embraced high tea, and you say that delighting in his cultural idiosyncrasies is one of the joys of your life. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I never thought I would end up with a British person, you know, (laughs) so... I think when we started dating, we really had to sort of like meet in the middle. And I think one of the things for sure, he was definitely more reserved and definitely kept his feelings like close and was not as expressive as he is now. And he has such a wonderful personality and he's so nerdy and he's so (laughs) funny and he's so smart. And it's really like, he's just this bright light and So I think it was interesting at first, you know, when I went to the UK and I was like really spending time with people for the first time, I think, when did I go? Like uh, maybe Christmas 2017. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things where it was just like, oh, I see. Okay. This is sort of culturally speaking, like you guys aren't the oozing wound that, you know, Americans are where we're like, we want to tell you everything all the time, keep you up to speed. And so while there are parts of me where I'm like, oh, we got to like break this wall down a little bit, just the way that he carries himself and his Britishness, I I really love and enjoy and I never want him to change that. I never want him to get rid of that. Um, I think he feels the same way about me and he, you know, like he admires like the American confidence that I have and I've been living in New York for almost 20 years. So that kind of like ball busting energy that I have, like he (laughs) loves that. And I think it's, we bring out the best in each other, ultimately. Bono is among your favorite people on earth. And Mm -hmm. I remember you wrote that meeting him was better than reparations. (laughs) I did write that. (laughs) Does that land a little differently now, Phoebe? I mean, I was definitely joking. Like it was like truly one of the highlights of my life to meet him um, and to have him aware of my work. But I, I certainly am like, let's get these reparations people like Bono is great, but, you know, give us the cash. <laughs> <laughs> but I just really, you know, even as I you know, know him and we become friends, I just really admire his conviction and his willingness to do the work to help make the world a better place. And, you know, I I just really think that he's a great person and that he was an activist long before it became trendy and cool to do it. You know, he wasn't doing it to build his brand. He was getting dinged for being an activist and really working, you know, outside of music and being politically active. Um, and outspoken. And so I just really appreciate that he was doing that. He never let any sort of like negative reaction to to him and his work get in the way of doing the work. And I'm, I'm so impressed by that. And I, he's, he's a wonderful person. Why was it refreshing when he asked you and BB what it's like being a couple? Yeah, I feel like my boyfriend and I are... Um, we, we could turn to a little bit of a comedy duo and, you know, we both have such vibrant personalities in such different ways. So I think whenever people ask us that, and when he asks us that, 
it was just like so fun. And, you know, Bake Off and I have our stories that we can go to and moments we can call on. And so it's really nice to sort of, I don't want to say like perform, but it's nice to just sort of like point out the funny ways that our union works, you know, especially for someone like Bono or someone on that level who's constantly like having to perform and do things for other people or have to be like, I got to be funny or I got to be amazing or I got to tell the story. I got to take this selfie or this picture or whatever. It was just nice for him to just like sit down. He could like eat his food without us being like, so famous person perform for us, be famous for us. So we can run back and tell our friends. And like, it was literally just like the three of us just hanging out after a concert, like old homies, you know, it was really nice. But Phoebe, am I reading more into it, I thought part of what was refreshing when he asked you to what it was like being a couple was that he wasn't referring to interracial differences. Yes, yes, yes. It was purely just like, he's from the UK, you're from America. He's not like, what's it like to date a white person? Like he, no. <laughs> like not where uh, Bono's head was at, which I, I really appreciated that. And he loves America and he's been here a lot, obviously. And he really likes us together as a couple and really wanted to see, you know, what we sort of noticed culturally that was different about us that we had to deal with within our relationship comedian, actress, and writer Phoebe Robinson. Her new book is titled, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. We'll be back with more after a short break. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with the comedian and author Phoebe Robinson. Her new book is titled, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Here she reads an excerpt from the chapter titled, Yes, I have free time because I don't have kids. There are only a handful of toys I still remember from my childhood. The Skip It, which I was convinced made me an athlete, my Pee Wee Herman pull string talking doll, and my favorite one, a baby doll I creatively named Baby, which eventually got decapitated. But still, every night, the head and the rest of her body slept side by side with me in bed. Don't ask. Wait, 
Actually, you should, because what I just described was a low-key serial killer and training thing to do. Okay, so long story short, one day, my brother and I, playing with our various toys, decided to put the doll in the washing machine, and her head got chopped off. I was devastated, but because I loved baby so much, I never wanted to replace her. Instead, I would sometimes walk around the house carrying her head in my arms and everyone in my family just acted like this was normal. What the hell, mom and dad? Y'all have never met a hotel doorknob that you didn't inspect thoroughly for several minutes and give a silkwood shower to, yet not once were you like, let me investigate why our daughter is living her best low budget Wednesday Adams life and mothering a decapitated doll head. <laughs> You're addressing, in a very sobering way, a very serious topic. Why Why was it important for you to be public about the choice to not have children, Phoebe? I mean, clearly this is something you and BB reached. You're fine with it. They're fine with it. Everybody's fine with it. Why was it important for you to be public with this? Yeah, I mean, I just think so many, not I think, I know, society still values women based on motherhood. And if you're a good mother, which, you know, the standards are so high for women to do everything perfectly, spend all their time with their kids, also work, be the PTA mom, know how to bake, be there for all the extracurriculars. So there's these this sort of like expectation that women are supposed to be these incredible, perfect mothers who love being a mom 24-7. And if you don't subscribe to that lifestyle, or if that's not something that you want and you choose to not have children, or through circumstances beyond your control are unable to have kids, but you still want them, your womanhood is put into question. And so, you you know, I'm in my mid thirties and a lot of my friends are in, are in the same age bracket. And a lot of them are having kids now. And some of them are older than me and they're having kids now, or some of them are just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to freeze my eggs and sort of figure this out. And I just felt like there's just such a stigma if a woman chooses to not have children, to look at her life, you know, really take into account everything that she wants or doesn't want, how it impacts her life and comes down the side of, you know, I love kids or I like kids, but it's not for me. That decision is so negatively judged a lot of times. My hope was writing this essay was, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of other women who don't want to have kids and maybe they don't have as many supportive people in their lives as I have had and they feel a little discouraged or they feel pushed aside. And so I really wanted this essay while there are moments of comedy in there, as I just read, it's a really vulnerable and honest essay. And I really want women to celebrate their lives and the fact that they could choose how they wanted to live their life. Like that to me is the ultimate cause for celebrations that you got to make that choice. Mm. And society needs to allow women to make the choices without having anything to say about it. It really struck me when you wrote about, I think you described it as a collective sigh 
from society when Cameron Diaz chose to have a child at 47 and George Clooney to become a father at 53 or 56, whatever. I don't think I had ever stopped to realize the stigma that goes along with being consciously childless. Yeah, and I think like with those two examples I was using in the book, I think if someone has kids later in life, a lot of times people will be, oh, okay, so you finally decide to grow up. As if everything they did when they weren't a parent is invaluable, is unworthy, is not important. When I was writing about that, I was just like, that's not what the reaction should be. The reaction should be, oh, that's great that you've changed your life in a way that fits you better now. And I think this notion that you are Peter panning your way through life if you're not a parent, I just think is so dismissive. Not everybody wants the same things and that's okay. And I know we're all in this together as a society, but people have to make the right choices for their lives. And the last thing that I think any of us want is for people who have no desire to have children to try and become parents. Like we don't need that. We want people who want to do the job and are really, you know, passionate about moldy human beings. And if that's not what your passion is, Please, by all means, don't do it. Mm. Congratulations on forming your own business, Tiny Reparations, and the success of that business, Phoebe. My goodness, the, the book imprint, the production company, how you manage it all and find a couple hours to sleep is beyond comprehension. <laughs> I gather it's rewarding. It is rewarding. I, of course, have a team. I'm not doing everything by myself. And yeah, I mean, I definitely was a workaholic where it was like hustle, 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 go, go, go. And now I'm definitely moving with more intention and trying to slow down a little bit and take pockets of time. And, you know, like I worked a lot yesterday and then it was eight o'clock and I stopped so I could watch Dancing with the Stars. Like important (laughs) stuff. Yes. I I take time out to relax and take naps to go on vacations and read for pleasure. And I think that's what everyone should, should be allowed to jump off the hamster wheel and just recharge and, and have a little bit of fun. Mm. There was one part of that chapter in which you address serious things that made me laugh out loud so forcefully. Phoebe, I'm not exaggerating this. I startled my husband, who was upstairs with the door closed. (laughs) And I was hoping you would share the story that made me laugh that loud. The story of your little three-year-old nephew's taste in mustard. Oh, yeah. I was on the phone with my dad, just like catching up about life. I don't know where he was just like, you know, Trey, that's the name of my nephew. He goes, Trey, like only wants to eat Grey Poupon. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. And how (laughs) did that come to be? (laughs) And my dad was like, well, you know, I wanted him to try like a bunch of different, you know, condiments and sort of like, figure out what he likes and what he doesn't like and just, you know, have this adventure with like taste or whatever. And I was like, right, 
he's three. He still licks the floor. He does not need to try out Grey Poupon. Like he's he's in a different place right now. And it was just so funny that my dad was like, I just can't believe it. And I was just like, we aren't even a bougie family. I don't even know why you're like doing this, but it just made me laugh so much. It was so funny. I loved it. And of course, this ties into your realizing that you don't need to provide the most expensive gourmet snacks for your team or the architectural digest of his furniture. Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, starting out in in stand-up comedy, I worked at this internet company called IAC and they own websites like mash.com, Daily Beast, College Humor. And, you know, they were a company that has been around for, I want to say 25, 28 years. I can't remember the exact number of years, but you know, they have overseas office, they have LA office, New York office, and they would just have all like the best snacks. And like, they had this wellness room where, you know, people could just step away from their desk for like 10 minutes or, or women needed to go um, pump their, their breasts for milk. They could do that in private. They had like, these nice little like conference rooms and like places where people could go if they needed to like, you know, congregate. And, you know, so when I was watching all that, I was like, oh, that's like what a real office does. They have like all these perks and, you know, they make like our holiday parties were so nice and fancy and had great food. And then when I was starting my own company, I was like, all that stuff is really cool. Like I eventually would like to have a wellness room. So if anyone who works for me is breastfeeding. They have a place where they could go pump and then come back to their desk. But I was also like, just because I can't afford to have that stuff doesn't mean that this isn't going to be a real office or I'm not going to cultivate an environment that is safe um, and good and you know efficient for my employees. So I had to just realize that because I don't I'm not in a position where I could provide all these perks all the time. It doesn't mean that I'm not a true boss. And I really had to learn that like, and they know that we're all doing, I'm doing the best I can. I know that they're doing the best they can. And so when, when people know that and you make the effort, they don't need the like 10 different kinds of cereals if the company culture is toxic. So I try to make sure the things that really matter, I prioritize. And then like, if I could throw in a perk here or there, I certainly want to do that. But yeah, I've learned a lot from being a boss and a leader over these past few years. And I I think it's made me a better person on the whole, or at least I hope it has. It's such a different skill set required from your writing talent, your acting and stand-up. This This is a big thing to take on, Phoebe. Yeah, it's a lot. And it's a lot of learning on the job. And you make some mistakes, you get some stuff right. And you just have to sort of have patience with yourself and not expect yourself to be perfect. My employees don't expect me to be perfect. I don't expect them to be perfect. And so, you know, I really try and go into into the office or into these Zoom meetings, because I'm still kind of mostly working from home, I go in maybe like once a week, just show up as my best self and, and allow myself and everyone around me to grow and change and, and figure this stuff out, because it's tricky. Uh, I don't know how you do it. But 
you lay it out beautifully in the book, and I was hoping you would you would tell us about the title. Yeah, please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes is truly something my parents live by. They clean their house top to bottom once a week. I'm talking sweeping, mopping, cleaning the baseboards, dusting, you know, rearranging the furniture, all that stuff. And that was really sort of the environment that my older brother and I grew up in. And they were just like the outside world is funky and trifling and dirty. And when you come into this home, we don't want that filth in here. And so, yeah, don't sit on the bed. Don't sit on the couch until you change your clothes. And that's something that has stuck with me. And when I moved out and I went to college, I didn't realize it had stuck with me until, you know, I got my bedding from Target and I was so proud of like how cute it was. And people want to sit on my bed. And I was just like, you were just on the subway. You can't sit on my bed. Oh, my God. And then <laughs> I realized that was a life lesson for my parents that really stuck with me. And because I write about them a fair amount in the book, I thought it would be nice to sort of shout them out in the title. Comedian, actress, and author Phoebe Robinson. Her new book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, comes out tomorrow. In a moment, the award-winning poet Nikki Finney discussing her National Book Award-winning collection, Head Off and Split. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Poet Nikki Finney's ability to mingle the intimately personal with the political in her collection Head Off and Split earned her a National Book Award in 2011. Her collection Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry Poems and Artifacts, was named one of the best books of 2020 by NPR, and she was also a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Poetry. When Finney gave the annual Georgia State University Humanities Lecture in 2018, we spoke in the WABE studios. She began talking about the radical libretto, The Battle of and for the Black-Faced Boy. I was asked to write a a libretto for um, something that was happening at the University of of Maryland a few years ago. And we had music and we were going to have drama and some other things on stage. And so the word libretto kept floating around. And doing the research on what a libretto was and what they needed, I decided, as usual, I was going to go off key and, <laughs> and not just do what I was asked to do, but do what my soul and my mind and my heart was telling me I should do. And so it's called a radical libretto because it, it doesn't have all the things a libretto has in it traditionally, and yet it does have some of those things. And it also has 
a sense of radicalness at its core because of what it's talking about. It's talking about the history of African-American males in America. And so it starts out uh, in 1851 and comes forward to present time, present time being two years ago. And so it's very long and historical uh, moments are peppered into the writing of this this radical libretto. And actually, um, we are talking now with a different source about putting this to music. Ah, so, so it, it, I don't mean to say it would be a real libretto. It would be a traditional libretto. It was a libretto. traditional libretto, yes. The battle is stunning. Oh, thank you. In its unflinching description mm. of injustice mm. from a young boy sailing on a slave ship mm. to its gorgeous language, mm. would you read some portions for us? Certainly. This is called At War With Ourselves, The Battle Of and For the Blackface Boy. And it begins with a italicized uh, epigraph, which says, Boys needed to turn swamp and forest into gold. In 1851, he is stopped and frisked, then packed down in the ice of iron at the bottom of the Jesus, 16 hours a day on his back for 192 days. He has three square feet of space and 10 vertical inches of air. The catanine tails whips away the jaws of the speculum orus feed him horse pea mush. By amazing grace, he is alive. Sharks follow the boat, 100 times as many blackface boys thrown over will eventually make the passage. The new world's leading boy is disposable and in great supply. Open wide, blackface boy, open wide. Our brave new world will make great use of you. Once on shore, he is barely breathing. They stand him up in a vat of palm oil. His black face will be oiled, rubbed, and watched for hundreds of years. He leaves behind what privacy is. It is illegal for him to be outside, alone. A pass or a civil war will be required. And it goes on to talk about, it brings you through the 1920s and the 1940s and, and in, on into uh, modern history. But one of the things that I love about poetry and I love about writing about things that I care about very much is the research that goes on. And so in that first passage when I was talking about the math of it all, the Jesus was the name of a slave ship. Uh, can we be ironic enough? Yes. And 16 hours a day is what African people had to endure in the belly of those ships. They were not pretty spaces, to put it mildly. Uh, ten vertical inches of air was all, once you look at the, the sketches from some of those ships, all you had was ten inches of air above you. And so I did. I just did some math there, three, three square feet of space. The cat of nine was the name of the whip. Um, the speculum orus was, was the name of the, the thing that actually pushed food into the mouths of enslaved people so that they would not die because they, one of the ways of resistance was to not eat. And so the slavers made them eat so that they would hopefully make the passage uh, and then be sold, which was the whole, the, the money was always, and the, and the work was always at the heart of this horrific institution. How painful was it 
for you with this research, my God. Well, it's, you know, that's, it's painful, but it's necessary because one of the things that I don't understand is why we, we don't teach this in our schools and why we don't know this history. And I w- came from a family, I was lucky enough to come from a family that taught me American history with this included and did not take this out because it was uh, a part of history that some people didn't want to turn and face. But because I came to it early and because I knew the horrific uh, different kinds of things that went on, I just you just take a deep breath. You go back into that information with the heart and the head that other people need to hear this. Uh, my nieces and nephews need to know this if they're not learning it. The colleagues that I work with who are wonderful and bright and caring and tender need to hear me say this. And because I believe poetry ultimately must push us into a new place. But I'm also, I'm also wanting to talk about the responsibility that I feel as a poet to not just say the beautiful thing in a beautiful way that makes you sit back. I read that several years ago, this short story writer, Tony Cade Lambara, mm. asked you. From Atlanta, in yes, Atlanta. Yes, here in Atlanta. What else yes. can your words do besides adorn? Yes. Now, the words in the battle of and for the black-faced boy are elegantly chosen, but that doesn't render them ornamental. No. Would you talk about that advice you received from oh, the author when oh you were a young poet? She, she gave writing workshops in her house in Atlanta. I was here in graduate school. I heard about that she did this, and I said to myself, I have to go. And I wa- I wa- I, she was a, a neighborhood over. I was in southwest Atlanta. She was uh, in northwest Atlanta, and there were... In her front room, there were nurses and bus drivers and students and people who loved language who never got a chance to go to a writing workshop. And we were all there working on things we loved to to say and write. And so one day she just said to me, and it changed my life, she said, you know, you write real pretty. (laughs) I said, well, thank you. And I just was getting really full of myself. And she said, but that's not enough. You don't just write to adorn the page. You write to to move somebody to think about something in a different kind of way. And I went home, and people were calling me to say, you know, are you okay? Because she suffered no fools Mm. lightly. She gave it to you like she gave it to you. And if you understood that she was doing that out of love, you came back. And if you thought that she was trying to embarrass you or say something, you know, critical that you couldn't use, then you didn't come back. Well, I I was back the next Sunday. And I was thinking about what she said the entire week about how I did want my work to move and motivate and and offer more than the prettiness of language. I loved metaphor. I loved adjectives. I was a a nerd about words. You know, but <laughs> a I was nerd. I love it. A nerd about words. I don't think I've ever said that in that way. But I wanted also to be a part of the tradition of literature and poetry that offered something to the listener that put something in their pockets when they left. That tradition of uh, of Walt Whitman, you know, in the Civil War, not just leaning back and, and, and waiting for the war to end or writing about it from afar, but going to the hospital and being present and watching and recording what was actually happening, reporting. 
I feel somewhat like a reporter sometimes, but not a reporter that you're going to get on the nightly news. I want to do more than just tell you the facts. I want to bring more about the human condition, about humanity, about who we are as people when I write what I write. The distinguished poet and academic Nikki Finney. She won the National Book Award for her 2011 collection, Head Off and Split. Last year, her love child's hotbed of occasional poetry, Poems and Artifacts, was one of NPR's best books of 2020. Seminal punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg has made a career of being honest and passionate with his songwriting. He has a new album coming out on October 8th called The Million Things That Never Happened. I spoke with Billy Bragg last year after the release of his book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Here, he talks about the crucial role of music in our everyday lives. Well, in order for accountability to happen, people have to be willing to call people out. And music has a role in that. But more importantly, I think, the currency of music, whether it's political music or pop music, any kind of music, the currency is empathy. That's what we're connecting with when a song moves us. We're very fortunate if we're moved by music because we're able to feel empathy for emotions uh, and for individuals perhaps that we've never met, emotions that we've never experienced ourselves. That's the power that music has. And at the moment we live in a time where empathy is derided. People who express compassion for others are dismissed as being politically correct. And political correctness doesn't even exist. It's a trope. It's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. So by bringing people together, by listening to music, by feeling empathy together, we begin to push back against those people who would divide us, those people who would single out individuals for blame. Empathy music brings us together, and that's the role it plays. It doesn't have the agency to actually make change, unfortunately, that's been my experience, but it is possible to bring people together. Which of your songs do you think demonstrate those ideas most vividly, Billy? I have a song called There Is Power in a Union which talks about organizing in the workplace for rights, for wages, for people being able to hold the management accountable in the workplace. I think this is absolutely crucial because accountability to me is the, the base of all great social movements. You know, if you look in the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was about accountability. 
But if you look at the frontline struggles in the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the environment, the school strikers, they're all attempts to hold those in power to account. They don't have a clear connection, but the thing that does connect them all is accountability. So this issue of accountability, it's not, it's not a left or right issue. It's a, a universal idea. And, and we, on the, we on the left have to be as accountable as anybody else. The seminal punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg in 2020 from a conversation about his book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Billy Bragg will release his 10th studio album on October 8th, The Million Things That Never Happened. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Melissa Arasi, the artistic director of the Atlanta Women's Chorus, talks about the excitement of Phoenix Rising, their upcoming concert in person. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.